16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8. But before we read God's word, let's pray for help. Oh Lord, we need your help. We're prone to wander. We're hard-hearted. We're ignorant and yet proud. Help us, oh God. Help us by your spirit. Open our eyes that we would understand your word and how it relates to our lives today. Give us faith in your word that we would read it not just as some sort of academic book or ancient tome, but to really believe it and to put it into practice. Help us, oh God. Help me to preach clearly and faithfully and use this time to build our faith. Through Christ we pray. By the way, kids are at this time dismissed to Children's Church. So if that's you, go ahead and go. Follow along as I read Mark 16, 1 through 8. This is God's Word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God give us ears to hear his word. A particular quote I have read several times from this pulpit is by a guy named A.W. Tozer. Many years ago, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I don't know about you, but I really believe that is true. What you believe and think about God is enormously important. What you believe and think about God will determine how you spend your money, how you spend your time, who your friends will be, how you raise your kids, your entertainment choices, oftentimes who you will marry. What we believe about God is massively important. Well, I want to take that quote and reword it slightly. And I believe the following says almost the same thing, just in slightly different words. I would contend that what we believe about the Bible is almost the most important thing about us. Now, again, I really believe that is true. What you believe about the Bible will determine so much of how you live, the choices you make, your financial choices, how you use your time, how you raise your kids, even the fact that you're here this morning. If you believe the Bible is the Word of God, you will live one way. If you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, you'll live in an entirely different way, but it really does come back to what we believe about the Bible. Now, if such is the case, then knowing whether or not the Bible is the Word of God is of massive importance, isn't it? I mean, if this shapes how we live, and if the Bible is what it claims to be, this is a question worth considering. Is the Bible the inspired word of God or is it not? Is it a bunch of ancient fables and myths best to be ignored? Or is it the book from God that we should trust and obey? What is the Bible? 
And throughout this series, I've been trying to persuade you that the Bible is the Word of God down to each and every one of its individual words. That's the big point. I remind you of this again. The big point of this entire series is to convince you that the Bible is the uniquely inspired Word of God down to each and every one of its individual words. If you really believe that, that will inevitably change your life. Is the Bible the Word of God or is it not? Is it a supernatural book from God or just a bunch of ancient legends? What is the Bible? Well, it's with this that we come to our third sermon in our current mini-series on the trustworthiness of the Bible. I'm going to have to probably stop calling it a mini-series because it's seeming to grow over the weeks. But in this series, we're looking at the Bible, we're looking at external evidence, and we're asking the question, is the Bible the Word of God like it claims to be, or is it an imposter? Is it a book worth devoting our lives to, or is it better forgotten? What is the Bible? Now, during the last two weeks, if you've been with us, we've considered seven different reasons as to why we can and should believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I won't reiterate those now, but I would encourage you to listen to or watch those sermons. We're sort of building a cumulative case here, and I'm going to be assuming today some of what we've talked about before. So listen to or watch those sermons if you haven't been here for those. And in addition to those seven reasons we've already talked about, This morning, I want to give you one more, one more huge reason why we should believe the Bible is the unique Word of God. Now, I should clarify, if you're looking at your notes, we're only going to be covering one of those three points there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to move points one and three to another time. As I was pulling this together yesterday, I realized I had about a good two hours worth of information I could have covered with you today. Didn't think that was wise. So we're going to move points one and three to another time and talk only today about the relationship of Jesus' resurrection to the trustworthiness of the Bible. But with that in mind, consider with me then how the resurrection of Jesus, the event on which the entire Bible hangs, is one of the most important, pardon me, one of the most historically verified events in human history. I have to explain what this means and show you how this is true this morning. But in addition to all that we've already seen, Consider how the resurrection of Jesus, the event on which the entire Bible hangs, is one of the most historically verified events in human history. Now, it's well known that true Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus. This is something that's widely understood. True Christians are those, in the words of Romans 10.9, confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. True Christians are those who, in the words of 1 Thessalonians 1.10, are waiting for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And true Christians are, in the words of Romans 6.4, buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So all true Christians believe that Jesus was resurrected, Literally, historically, physically, he was dead, but three days later, he was alive again. And I'd venture to say that if you don't actually believe that, you are not a Christian. Now, that is well understood, but what is not so well understood is how vital Jesus' resurrection is to the trustworthiness of the Bible. Jesus' resurrection is, in a way, a unique event about which the Bible itself says, if this event did not happen, you basically should toss your Bibles in the trash can. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15 several times. Chris read it already, but let me read again a couple of the verses that say this. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, Jesus has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, the entire religion arising from the Bible is a sham. We are literally wasting our time. It would have been better to stay home. And yet, if the resurrection did happen, the reverse is true. Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus' view of Scripture is the true view of Scripture. The plan of God is coming to pass, and everything that we see in the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. So much of it comes back to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, why does the resurrection function this way? I mean, we wouldn't say the same thing about, say, his cross. We could prove that Jesus died by crucifixion, but that wouldn't necessarily prove that the Bible is trustworthy and from God. So what is unique about the resurrection? Well, let me give you three reasons why Jesus' resurrection is uniquely tied to the trustworthiness of the Bible. First, the Bible is literally packed with prophecies of Jesus' resurrection. Did you know that? The Bible, and not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, is packed with prophecies of Jesus' resurrection. So what that means is that Jesus' resurrection, if it did happen, that's a fulfillment of ancient prophecies. But if it didn't, the Bible's filled with false predictions that didn't come to, ha- come to pass. For example, in the Old Testament, we read this in Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. To the first readers of that psalm, they probably didn't have a clue what that was talking about. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. But knowing now what we know of the New Testament, we know exactly what that's talking about. Think about Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53 is a well-known prophecy of Jesus, but there's a resurrection prophecy in there as well. Isaiah 53.10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What on earth can that be talking about if not the resurrection? He's going to suffer. He's going to make atonement, but he's going to see the satisfaction of his soul and be satisfied? Many have seen an allusion to Jesus' resurrection, even in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel. You'll remember God speaking to the serpent says this, He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Now again, if you know the rest of the story, you know that that crushing of the head of the serpent is the cross in which Jesus' heel is bruised. Now what's that mean? That's a painful experience, but it's not a mortal wound. Probably alluding to the resurrection. Now, when we come to the New Testament, and specifically to Jesus, prophecies of the resurrection are everywhere. In fact, every single time that Jesus talks about the cross, he immediately follows it up with a prophecy of the resurrection. Check this out, but every single time that he says the cross is coming, he always says, I'm going to be raised. For example, Mark 8.31, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But after three days, rise again. So this is a first reason why Jesus' resurrection is uniquely tied to the historical reliability of the Bible. Because the Bible is constantly predicting it, prophesying it. So in a way, the integrity of the Bible hangs on it. Let me give you a second reason why Jesus' resurrection is uniquely tied to the trustworthiness of the Bible. Every single book of the New Testament mentions or alludes to Jesus' resurrection. Did you know that? There are 27 books in the New Testament, every single one of them. They either explicitly talk about the resurrection or clearly allude to it. In a way, the message of the New Testament could be summarized with the words of Acts 4.10. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. 
The entire New Testament proclaims the gospel of the one who is in the words of Revelation 1.18, the first and the last and the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So what this means is that if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, every single one of the books of the New Testament is built on a hoax. If Jesus' resurrection is a myth, the New Testament is really just a compendium of ancient legends. But if Jesus did rise again, every single one of the books of the New Testament is built on a miracle, a supernatural miracle that only God could perform. Here's one final reason why Jesus' resurrection is tied to the trustworthiness of the Bible. In the theology of the Bible, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But in the theology of the Bible, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. Now, I realize that's assuming a lot, but what does that mean? Well, it's as if with Jesus' resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth have already broken into our fallen world. If Jesus has been raised, what that means is that God is going to turn back the curse. It means our resurrections are guaranteed. It means the ultimate new creation is guaranteed. And what that ultimately means is that the plan of God is going to come to pass. You see, in a way, Jesus' resurrection is sort of a a movie trailer. This is what I'm going to do at the end of time. I'm going to turn back the curse and bring a remedy to what sin has done to our universe. Where does the Bible teach this? It teaches it's actually in several places. But again, probably the clearest is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, If Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You see what he's saying? It's almost as if all that we believe about the new creation, about the new heavens and the new earth, about the restoration of all things, it's almost as if that's kind of the camel that's got his nose in the door already through Jesus rising again. So for these three reasons, Jesus' resurrection is uniquely tied to the trustworthiness of the Bible. The Bible's packed with prophecies of this event. Every single one of the books of the New Testament mentions or alludes to the resurrection. And it is the first fruits of the new creation and sort of the guarantee that the entire plan of God is going to come to pass. I say it again, if Jesus' resurrection did not happen, the entire Bible is a sham. But if it did, we have strong reason to believe it is trustworthy. So in light of that, what can we say about Jesus' resurrection? Is this event that's historically verified, is it trustworthy? Is it something that we can be sure and certain came to pass? I believe we can. And let me give you four reasons to believe that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. Four reasons to believe that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. Just as certain as Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president, so also certain is the fact that Jesus rose again three days after his death. Let me give you one. First, the simple existence of the New Testament. The simple fact that we have a New Testament is evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, why do we say that? Well, like I just mentioned, every single one of these books alludes to or mentions the resurrection. In fact, there are 104 direct references to Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament. So this is a book founded upon and permeated by the belief that the same Jesus who died on the cross was raised again three days later. But the question you've got to deal with is that if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, who in the world would write the New Testament? 
I mean, this is not just an email or a text or something like that. We, we've got a book of 27 individual books that was not only written down, but copied and copied and spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Who in the world would go to such lengths if this was all just lies and fables? Listen to what commentator Jay Norville Geldenheis writes. I think this is thought-provoking. Thought he says, If Jesus had not risen, the New Testament would never have been written. For who would have taken time to write the biography of anyone who laid tremendous claims to messiahship and divinity, but whose career terminated in a shameful death? But God be praised, Jesus did arise, and that is why the group of men who wrote the books of the New Testament took up their pens with such enthusiasm and holy conviction. And throughout their writings, we perceive the clear note of their firm conviction that Jesus Christ, who had died, rose again from the dead and was invested with divine power and glory. What makes this an even stronger argument is that if you think about it, several of the books of the New Testament were written by Jesus' personal friends. Peter, Matthew, John, they were all apostles. James, Jude, they were half-brothers of Jesus, sons of Mary. These guys who knew Jesus personally went on to write the New Testament. And what's more, all of Jesus' first disciples, with the only exception of John, died horrifying deaths as martyrs. Again, look into this and you'll find out it's true. They were all virtually tortured to death. And the question you've got to deal with is, would people who knew in their hearts that they were defending a lie, would they allow themselves to be tortured to death for something that they knew was a lie? simply doesn't make sense. The only reasonable explanation is the one that the Bible provides. The same Jesus who died was raised again from the dead three days later. And the simple existence of the New Testament is evidence of that. Quickly, a second reason for believing that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. All four Gospels emphasize that ladies were the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Did you know that? All four gospel accounts emphasize that it was ladies, women, who were the first witnesses of Jesus. It's like we read in Mark 16, 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they might go and anoint him. This is an interesting detail that Matthew, Luke, and John all emphasize. This is one of the few details that all four gospels include. And at first glance, you might think, what's the big deal? Who cares? It's ladies. whoop de doo well, what you need to realize is that in those days, women were not considered reliable eyewitnesses. In Jewish courts of law, in Roman courts of law, they were not allowed to give testimony. Uh, you know, it's not as if they were deceptive or something like that. It was just in the court systems and then the laws of those days. They were not permitted to testify that so-and-so had taken place. Now, why is that significant? This is significant because if you're going to invent a legend, these are not the witnesses you want to be eyewitnesses of your legend. Does that make sense? I mean, in a culture where women are not allowed to be eyewitnesses, you don't invent women eyewitnesses if you want people to believe in your legend. Saying this better than I could, author William Lane Craig writes this, Women were on a very low rung of the social ladder in first century Palestine. Now, realize in all that we're saying, we're not saying that this was good. You know, women are precious in God's sight and made in God's image, and we, we love them and value them. I'm just telling you that this is how people thought in those days. Okay, this was kind of thinking in the Roman Empire. Women were in a very low rung of the social ladder in first century Palestine. There are old rabbinical sayings that said, let the words of law be burned rather than delivered to a woman, which is terrible, but that's what they thought. And blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. 
Sadly, people still think that way today. Women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. In light of this, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women. Any later legendary account would have certainly portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb, Peter or John, for example. The fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. This shows that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what happened, even if it was embarrassing. This bespeaks the historicity of this tradition rather than its legendary status. And again, if this didn't happen, why on earth include this detail? It, it's not going to help if you're persuading people to believe a legend. If anything, it's going to give skeptics a reason to not believe it. The only possible reason to have ladies as the first eyewitnesses is because that's exactly how it happened. Jesus did rise again from the, the dead, and the Bible is recording it accurately. Let me give you a third reason why we should believe the resurrection is, is a historical fact. Extra-biblical documents prove that Christians believed in Jesus' resurrection from the very beginning. Did you know that? Extra-biblical documents, stuff outside the Bible, is very clear. That from the very start, Christians believed that Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, last week we talked about Josephus. He was not a Christian. He was just a sort of a secular historian, wrote history books of the Roman Empire. In around 80 A.D., so the first century, this is what he says about Jesus' resurrection. I realize this is the same quote I read last week, but some of us weren't here last week, so let me read it again. He says, now there was, an, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him at the first did not forsake him. Now up to that point, you think, okay, this is nice. You know, Jesus lived and died on the cross and he had followers. But look at what unbelieving Josephus says next. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct at this day. It's pretty remarkable for a non Christian to testify that it's widely published abroad that the same Jesus who died was raised again, and that's in 80 AD. But not only do secular sources talk about this, but we've got ancient Christian documents, again from the first century. Not from your Bible, but you know, Christian letters, sermons, so forth, talking about the way in which we Christians have believed from the beginning that Jesus rose again from the dead. A book you may have heard of is First Clement. Not in the Bible, shouldn't be in the Bible, it's not inspired scripture, but it's sort of an early sermon. And in 1 Clement 24.1, we read this, this is about 95 AD. Let us consider, dear friends, how the Master continually points out to us the coming resurrection of which he made the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruits when he raised him from the dead. So here we just have two examples, one secular, one Christian, testifying that from the beginning, Christians believed that Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, you might say in light of that, that actually doesn't prove the resurrection. That just proves that Christians thought Jesus rose again from the dead. And if you're saying that, that's true. You're right. This doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection happened. It just proves that Christians believed it from the start. But what this does do is eliminate a lot of nonsense people think is true about the resurrection. A lot of people think that Jesus' resurrection is this kind of legend that grew up over hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, similar to the resurrection, or uh, the, the legend of, say, 
Robin Hood or something like that. You know, there may have been a Robin Hood a long, long time ago, but all that stuff about Little John and the Merry Men, you know, that, that's just kind of legend that grew up over time. Many people, especially in America, think that that's how Jesus' resurrection works. That at the very beginning, nobody really, they just thought he was a nice teacher and they followed his teachings, but they never thought he was God. And they definitely didn't think he rose again from the dead. That must have come along in the Middle Ages. Everything that I've just been pointing out to you tells you that that's a lie. That cannot be true. The first followers of Jesus, including friends that knew him in his lifetime, they believed that the dead Jesus came back to life again. And the question you've got to answer is that, is why did they believe that? If it happened, that makes a lot of sense. But if it didn't happen, it makes no sense. Let me give you a fourth and final reason this morning for believing that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. Consider with me lastly how Jesus' resurrection is the only explanation for the immediate change in the day of worship for God's people. I'm going to explain this further in a minute. Maybe just going to jot it down if you're taking notes. But how Jesus' resurrection is the only explanation for the immediate change in the day of worship for God's people. Now, to really get this, you need a little bit of background. But if you know the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, which day was the day of worship for the people of God? Saturday, the Sabbath. This was even instituted in the Ten Commandments, in commandment number four. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So for thousands of years, the Jews worshipped on Saturday. And if you know conservative or orthodox or observant Jews today, they still worship on Saturday. But something funny comes after the resurrection. When you come to the book of Acts, which day of the week is the day of worship for God's people? Not a rhetorical question. It's Sunday. Throughout the New Testament, and we've got plenty of extra-biblical sources testifying to this as well, God's people are gathering on Sunday to worship. Just to give you one example, Acts 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we had gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his sermon till midnight. Now think about how unusual this is. Virtually overnight, and without... Almost any objection, God's people go from worshiping on Saturday, which they had done for thousands of years, to bada-bing, bada-boom, worshiping on Sunday. They stop worshiping on the day that they had been worshiping on for thousands of years, and without any hesitation, go to Sunday. And if there's not a really dramatic reason for this, people might think at first glance that this is actually a violation of the Ten Commandments. Now just think through what you know of how people work. I mean, do we like change? especially if it's a change in our weekly schedule. You know, do, do people tolerate that sort of thing? Not really, unless there's something dramatic that's happened to change everything. I mean, we are stubborn. We, I mean, just think through how well getting rid of daylight savings time went here in Indiana. I've heard more complaints about that than almost anything. People don't like change. They don't like messing with my schedule. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me to do things on Monday that I used to do on Tuesday. So what on earth explains how the people of God, again, virtually overnight, with basically no hesitation, go from Saturday to Sunday, stop on Saturday, only on Sunday, without much objection at all. Well, there's only one explanation for it, and it's the explanation the Gospels give us. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they, had went, to the, they went to the tomb. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. I know you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. 
So you take these four facts, and these, by the way, are not the only evidences that we have for the resurrection. You can explore this really for the rest of your life. But you take these four facts, how Jesus' resurrection is assumed in the creation of the New Testament, how ladies were the first eyewitnesses, how ancient documents prove that Christians believed this from the very beginning, and how nothing else can explain the dramatic shift in the day of worship. I don't know about you, but to me, this is solid proof that the resurrection happened. After examining so much of the evidence, Benjamin Warfield writes in an article I'd really commend to you. If you want to explore this further, Benjamin Warfield, who used to teach at Princeton, says this, Taking all lines of proof together, it is by no means extravagant to to assert that no fact in the history of the world is so well authenticated as the fact of Christ's resurrection. And that established all Christianity is established too. Now, obviously, this is simply an introduction to a massive topic. You could explore this topic for the rest of your life. I've got a book in my library that's 700 pages, all and only about Jesus' resurrection. But if you want to begin exploring this topic, the book I'd recommend is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Raise your hand if you've read The Case for Christ. Anybody here? A good handful of you. Helpful book, introductory, but it'll give you some of the best arguments for why Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact. I'd encourage you to check it out. Now, coming back to the purpose of this series, tie this together with what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the trustworthiness of the Bible. I've been making the claim that the Bible is the inspired Word of God down to each and every one of the individual words. Now, realize how that is very much connected to Jesus' resurrection. Again, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Realize that if Jesus did rise again, the reverse of all of that is true. If Jesus has been raised, we are not dead in our sins, but alive together with Christ. If Jesus has been raised, our faith is not futile, but it is vital and life-giving. If Jesus has been raised, our preaching is not in vain, but wholly worthwhile. And if Jesus has been raised, everything the Bible says about him is true. And by implication, everything that says about everything else is true. You can trust the Bible. You can believe it is the inspired word of God, even when everything on TV and the internet mocks it, when your friends don't like it, when your flesh doesn't like it. You can stake your life and the life to come on the trustworthiness of the Bible. And one of the major reasons for that is the resurrection of Jesus. Believe, my brothers and sisters, in the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, in conclusion this morning, I would be greatly amiss if I didn't explain to you why Jesus rose again in the first place. Why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Why he died on the cross. It all comes back to something the Bible calls the gospel. What's the gospel, you ask? The gospel is a message. Please understand that it is a message. It's news. It's not an experience, not a feeling, not a way of life, not giving to the poor, not keeping the Ten Commandments. It is a message, a message about what God has done to reconcile sinful humans to himself. The gospel begins with God. God is the loving creator and Lord of the universe. He made everything that exists, and he made you. He made you to know him, to worship him, to have a relationship with him. Maybe just ponder that this week. God made me to know him. And because of that, God is worthy of your wholehearted devotion, obedience, and worship forever. 
And yet the gospel goes on to tell us that we have all rejected God's authority over our lives. And honestly, if you're just frank with yourself, you know this is true in your heart. We've broken God's laws thousands of times, willfully so. And so long as we can get away with it, it doesn't even bother us all that much. Essentially, we try to live life as if there is no God, when in reality he is a loving, gracious, kind, heavenly Father who delights to care for us. Because God is a righteous God, he will punish us for our rebellion, somewhat in this life, far, far worse than the life to come. And given those circumstances, everything that I've told you up to this point is a little bit terrifying. There's a glorious creator God, I've rebelled against him, and he must righteously punish me? Think about that. But this is why the gospel is good news, because under those very circumstances, God acted in grace to reconcile people to himself. And keep that in mind. The gospel is not about us trying to find our way to God. It's about God coming after us. And what did God do? He took the initiative. He sent his son Jesus down from heaven. Jesus is the perfect God-man, fully God and fully man in one person. He lived a life of perfect obedience, always obeying every one of God's commands. But then when he was in his mid-30s, Jesus died on the cross. And when he died, please hear me, Jesus died bearing the judgment in the place of sinners. He literally absorbed the wrath of God, the punishment of God that we deserved in our place as our substitute. It's like 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus, the God-man, dies on the cross, but like I've been telling you all morning, three days later, God raised him from the dead. Three days later, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and the resurrected Jesus is walking around Jerusalem. And that resurrection, it demonstrates many things, but maybe most of all, it demonstrates how Jesus is now victorious over death, sin, and the devil. That is the gospel message, and now it's in response to this message. In response to this news, God is calling you to repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Stop trying to run from God. Stop trying to live as if there is no God. Turn back and embrace Jesus. Embrace his cross. Embrace his resurrection. Rely on those as the only means of being made right with God. This is why Jesus came to earth. This is why Jesus died on the cross. And this is why God raised Jesus again from the dead. And at the end of the day, this is why the Bible, the Bible's trustworthiness is so important. And so that sinners like you and me, rebels like you and me, can hear the wonderful news of the gospel, the trustworthy news of the gospel, believe it and be saved, be reconciled to God. So in closing, I beg of you, with all that I have, I beg of you, put your trust in Jesus now. Man or woman, boy or girl, this is the only hope you have of being made right with your Creator. So if you've never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Right there as you're sitting there. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Believe on his death and resurrection. Embrace his loving leadership and be reconciled to God. Enter back into that relationship with your Creator that you were made for. Trust Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, would like to become a Christian today, please talk to me after today's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out.
but trust the resurrected Jesus today and today be made right with God. Now let's close in prayer. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the same Jesus who died, you raised again from the dead. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that our faith is trustworthy, it's certain, it's reliable, it's not myths and legends, but actual historical events that you accomplished to save us. We praise you for that. We praise you for your word and for the way that the entire Bible is trustworthy. Not just bits and pieces here and there, but the entire thing is inspired by God, trustworthy and true. Thank you for all of these gifts, O Lord. God, we do pray for any within the hearing of my voice who don't yet hope in the Lord Jesus. We do pray that you'd move by your spirit, that they would cry out to you for mercy, that they'd cast themselves upon Jesus, and we pray that they would be saved today. We pray all this through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, if you would, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to close by singing again in Christ alone.